You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddhist, where we discuss Zen Buddhism and incorporating mindfulness into daily life. My name is Matthew Hawk Mahoney, and in today's interview, we will be discussing the peace found in between our thoughts, Christianity and Buddhism, and not being so hard on yourself as a new meditator. Today, we're talking with my good friend, Rick Twilliger. After weathering the ever-present mist wall in Portland, Oregon for five years, I moved south to be closer to my family in Grants Pass, Oregon. There in this small Christian town, I discovered a Zen center? Growing up in the hills of Oregon, as mentioned in other episodes, was a mix of 70% Christianity ideals and 30% remnants left over from the pot-smoking hippies of the 70s. But Zen, Zen was unheard of in this little town. Rick, a lifetime practitioner, created Merging Rivers Zen Center to help share the message of mindfulness meditation with my small hometown community. Let's jump into the interview with Rick. Hey, Rick, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, how's it going over there in Oregon? Good, good. Rainy, cold, you know, it's winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I lived there for a while. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we talked a little bit before getting started and I checked in with you. Um, I appreciate you taking this time out of your weekend to sit down with me and talk some Buddhism. Sure. Just to kind of help our listeners get to know you a little bit, how did you get started meditating? Well, it started a long time ago, actually. Um, I got quite interested in meditation when I was in my mid-teens, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I followed or ran into a group of of people that were uh, meditating um, with a teacher out of India. Um, It was not Zen Buddhism. it was more um, maybe Hindu-based, more something more similar to that. It was called Ananda Marga, which means um, the path of bliss. And um, they had Indian teachers come over a couple times a year and would take you through these series of teachings or, or some type of empowerment thing that they would do. And then we would meet a couple times a week to meditate as a group. We had some pretty amazing Indian teachers come over and just sort of show examples of their energetic powers, if you will. Um, it was, hmm. you know, in, Interesting. In, being a teenager, I was very fascinated and, and very awed by, you know, these, you know, Indian teachers that were, you know, exotic looking and their teachings were mm-hmm. very uh, outside of the norm of the times at that time. So I meditated with that group for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so my path through meditation has been in and out for the last, oh my gosh, probably 50 years. Yeah. So I've followed a number of traditions. Um, mm-hmm. I've gotten interested in, in different 
teachers. Um, I've been to India. I have had a teacher over there until he passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I joined uh, the Thich Nhat Hanh's um, Zen Buddhist teachings and became ordained in his groups. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been sort of a, a follow follow along, finding different ways to to explore my inner self, and uh, I've used a lot of different methods and followed a lot of different paths. Yes, and I think you mentioned you said you kind of have come and gone with your meditation practice through. It seems like the you know lately you've really been in it, but through the years you've kind of come and gone, and I think partially part of that. As you were, you know, raising your family, I'm friends with, you know, your son Jeremy, and what is that kind of part of it? Is you know, you were, you know, you were working and and you know, doing life essentially. Yeah, I that that's a good way to put it. It's you know, when when life took a lot of uh, attention, both mm-hmm. professionally and and with the family, I would tend to sort of fall out of those practices and then. Um, get to a point in my life where maybe I wasn't as happy as, as I mm-hmm. thought I should be at that point in my life. So I would turn back to the kind of practices that I had learned in the past and uh, look for new ways to express that going into the future. So, um, yeah, it's... I think that's what's really cool. And that's why I'm really excited to be interviewing you for this podcast because it's it's trying to help people bring these mindful practices into you know, lay practitioner or just modern, you know, modern living. We're not living at temples. We're not practicing with other monks. We're just kind of out in the world practicing. And that's why it's, I'm thankful to have this time with you. So before, kind of a little bit of an add-on to that last question about how you got started in Buddhism or in meditation rather, what about that meditative practice kind of kept you coming back? Looking for meaning, I think, is probably the the most honest answer, mm-hmm. and um, not necessarily saying that I found it in the early days of my meditative practices. In fact, mm-hmm. I would say in the in the earlier stages or days of attempting to meditate, it was more of a uh, self discipline, like making myself do it, thinking that it would bring me something. And in the early days, honestly, it it didn't. Um, yeah, and I can't tell you why I continued, other than thinking that well, what else is there to do? You know, kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. like I'm looking for something, and I'm not finding it in traditional Western religions or or even spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. So, looking towards the East and doing a lot of reading, um, and and just being intrigued by the idea that there was the Eastern thought that there is something inside of you that you need to find. And it isn't that easy to find. It takes a while to find it. Yeah. So I was, I was uh, tenacious, I think is probably another way to put it is I kept going, kept trying um, until I did find something in it that was worthwhile. And that made a difference in my life. Wow. It connected. And, and I may be completely misremembering something you had told me, and I may be mixing up some stories here, but, and if you're not comfortable talking about this, let me know. Sure. But did you mention to me that you had had some experiences with psychedelic drugs that were part of you becoming really interested in meditation? Is that, might drive well, that right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a child of the sixties. Um, I grew up yeah. in San, 
I grew up near San Francisco, so, uh, you know, I, I jokingly say, and this is true, that, you know, at my high school, Joan Baez would come around at mm-hmm. lunchtime in the quad and play music in the, in the quad, and we didn't even know really? who she was. So Whoa. I literally grew up in the, in the San Francisco scene of the 60s. And so, yeah, I tried a lot of different psychedelic drugs. Mm-hmm. Not so much to, not so much recreationally as trying to use them to find meaning as well. Um, mm. You know, so it wasn't a party, to me, it wasn't a party drug. It was more, uh, let's go drop whatever out in the forest and, you know, see what happens. Yeah. Um, so it, it, in a sense, it was, it was a, uh, an exploration, uh, not unlike meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it really taught me was that the, the reality that we see and the reality that we experience is not necessarily, or I should say, is necessarily based on the chemistry of our minds. Mm-hmm. So we see the world in a certain way because of the chemicals that float around in our mind and allow us to see and perceive things as we see them. Mm-hmm. Um, taking psychedelics changed that brain chemistry that then changed mm-hmm. my perception of the world. Um, and all it really made me realize was that it lessened my attachment to what everyone wanted to refer to as what's true and real. You know, mm-hmm. it, it allowed you to ask the question, well, is that true? You know, mm-hmm. is it really that way? Or, or maybe the person I'm standing next to who's looking out onto the same scene I am is actually mm-hmm. seeing something differently than I see. And so that allowed me to sort of continue that inner exploration of what I was looking for that, that might be true. The one thing I learned, and I think, I don't know, I think it was Ram Dass, or it was one of the fellows back then said something about, you know, using psychedelics. It was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like calling God on the phone. Yeah. And once God's answered, there's no reason to talk to him anymore. <laughs> so, you right. know, it, it took me to a certain point, and then I realized that to continue would only be detrimental. Mm. Um, and again, that's a personal that's a personal journey experience. I would never, mm-hmm. ever recommend the use of anything like that to any mm-hmm. person who asks me, should I do this? Because yeah. I don't know. You know, I, right. I don't know how that, how they would re- react to it and experience it. Um, I mean, if we could talk drug experiences for hours, honestly, <laughs> you know, and I, and I would say that I knew just as many people who, did not get anything satisfactory or useful out of it uh, as many as, as did. So, you know, it's right. a crapshoot. It really is. It's uh it's not something to play with. It's not something that uh, could be, should be approached lightly. And I don't think it's necessary either. Honestly, for me, it was, but I don't think it's necessary for anyone in particular. Right. I think it's, it's just good to mention. I can, I think, because I think, some people are turning towards mindfulness practices, meditation, Buddhism, um, because maybe they have had these experiences. They've, you know, experienced something that they can't really, you know, get their hands on necessarily. Um, I, it wasn't the case for me. I never really did psychedelic drugs like that. But I know some people, it could just be worth noting, like, you know, other people have turned towards 
meditative practices, but it doesn't really sound like it was necessarily a correlation of like, oh, I experienced that hallucin- hallucinogenic ju- or drug, and now I want to go do meditation so I can feel that way again. It doesn't really sound like that's really where you are coming from. The only connection I see is that you know you are someone that was looking for to deepen your personal experience, to deepen your connection with life, and you know, hey, I heard that this psychedelic drug might be an, a doorway into that, and so you kind of checked it out and really wasn't for you kind of thing. Is that, that's right. Yeah. It's, I think it had to do with different avenues of exploration of myself. Yeah. And, you know, some people are born with a desire to try and look farther than everyday life. And I don't know why people, you know, one person is and one person isn't. Um, and so trying different things like that, um, maybe led me or allowed me to um, continue to look and find what it is that's taken me an entire lifetime to, uh, to realize. So what has been the greatest effect you've seen in your life through these mindfulness practices and zazen or meditation? I think it has to do with intention. It's like, what are you looking for when you go, when you approach things like meditation? Mm-hmm. Are you looking for a spiritual community to be a part of? Are you looking for um, meaning, the meaning of life, if you will? Yeah. So for me, it's always been about trying to find some level of peace within myself. Mm-hmm some level of satisfaction with where I fit and how I interact with the world around me. So that's always been my intention. So that's what I seek through these practices. And yeah, so, uh, you know, some people, some people approach meditation saying, I'm in so much psychological or physiological pain that I'm looking for a way to get rid of my pain, my suffering. Mm -hmm. that's not been so much what it is for me because I don't think that it does help in those things. Right. What I think it does is I think it helps you put them into perspective Mm -hmm. and allows you a way to learn how to live with them in a way that you can find some level of peace and satisfaction, no matter what your circumstances, but it doesn't remove anything from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that ties into a question I had. I actually asked Jayozin uh, on the last interview this, and, and it's something that he had mentioned is that expectation that it's going to, you know, remove the pain out of your life or, or change you in some some way where you don't experience these things anymore. And I would agree. Yeah, through my practice, it's been a similar experience. Where uh, did you do you read much Jack Cornfield? I have. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He has a book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And there's a oh, quote yeah. in there. Yeah, I love that book. Uh-huh. But there's a quote in there. And I always think of it, but I don't, I don't know exactly what it says, but it's something about one of these practitioners he was talking to said, you know, not a whole lot has changed for me after, you know, 30 years of practice. He says, it's like if I was in a cramped apartment with all this furniture and belongings that, I've taken all that furniture and belongings and moved myself into an airplane hangar. It's all still there, but 
there's just a lot more space to move around. <laughs> and yes. that, and that's been the been my my experience as well. It's not like it just removes all these things. It maybe does in my experience disentangle and be I don't experience you know that full spectrum of maybe like an anxiety attack, but it's still anxiety can be there or whatever it is that you're dealing with. So let's see. We have more questions for you, Rick. Okay. Okay. Um, what has been the greatest obstacle you've encountered or had to overcome with your meditation practice? I think settling on what expectation I have out of it. Right. So learning to, or coming to the realization that I don't do meditation to get anywhere. And I have no expectation of anything that might happen while I'm on my cushion. But learning that by sitting uh, in a consistent practice, changes my everyday life when I'm not on my cushion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think in the beginning, everyone approaches meditation as a, you know, a a path or a a means to get somewhere Mm -hmm. Um, that, that I'm going to sit on my cushion and eventually I'm going to get to this place where I slip into Samadhi, where, you know, I am, I'm in heaven. I'm, I'm with the angels. I'm, you know, right. with the demigods, you know, and that the rest of the world melts away. And it's like, it's an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had those kind of things, but not on the cushion. I've had them driving to the dumps. I've had them like sitting in a park one day on a bench and having the world shift in front of me. Wow. Um, but not, it, it, it's, I think meditation prepares you to be able to be receptive to what's all around us all the time. It's just that we're so busy and our minds are so full of everything else that we can't hear what's there. Yeah, I agree with that. And thanks for saying that. It was beautiful. Sure. And you know, in in the at the temple in Portland where I practiced for a while, one one thing they would always go back to is talking about samadhi or these experiences. And they talk about this in Zen Buddhism in general, but you know, it's like okay, yeah, those those are experiences, but we let them go. You know, that's not we don't hold on to them either. It's been actually kind of nice for me too, where if, if I have an experience like that. It's it's nice going in, I guess, with that mindset of like, if it happens, okay, but we're not, I'm not holding on to it like that's the object of my meditation. It's been helpful. I think that's, you know, the beauty of these ancient traditions like Zen Buddhism, where they have these hundreds and hundreds of years of practice behind it where you can tap into that. And it's been powerful. Um you know, along that line, Matt, um, in a lot of the talks or group discussions that I've had with people, um, just in the general public, not really practitioners so much, but um, 
That was my phone. I hope you didn't hear that. Oh, you're good. Cut that out. <laughs> um, so in, in talking with groups of people who have curiosities about meditation or about mindfulness practices, mm-hmm. one of the questions I always ask is, you know, what kind of experiences have you had in your life that, that maybe got you into this room? And, and many, many people have had those sort of aha moments or, yeah. or an opening that they see things differently, but don't know what it is. And in some cases, it scares them because they're not familiar with them. In other cases, it makes them very curious. But I think everybody, to some degree, has had that feeling of sitting somewhere and having the world just feel like it's gone still. Or mm-hmm. watching a sunset where you know, you're just in awe of what's going on and everything else just goes away. So. I think it's not an unfamiliar thing, and I don't think it's anything that, like you say, that it's not a goal. It's not something Mm -hmm. that we're trying to create, but it is a side effect, and you're right. It's not something that we should be chasing. In -hmm. in some Zen practices, they say if if you have what they call a kensho, which is an opening, that you're not supposed to even mention it for two years. Oh, wow. You're supposed to let it soak into you so that when you do talk about it, you don't sound like a raving maniac. <laughs> oh, man. I have never heard that. That's cool. Everyone, sometimes if people have very strong openings, they want to go tell everyone. They want to like shout it from the rooftops and everyone's looking at them going, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to let it mature into you and let it become part of you and, and in a sense, forget about it. Let it have whatever effect it's had on you, and then just move on from there. Mm-hmm. And this is, I'm going to do my best. There's kind of this question slash talking point that's kind of bubbling up, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm going to put the idea out there, and maybe you can help me with where I'm going here. But I have a friend that I grew up with. He's very uh, much in the Christianity world, and we... Um, I know you've done some interfaith dialogue with um, pastors, right? In the mm-hmm. past, yes, yeah, and it's it's good. I, my my friend, I talk with him, and we send you know s- different texts and and things about the spirituality that we practice. And his thing is always like, it's like he can't get over that. I don't. It's not that I don't believe that there's a God. It's it's just that I'm through these meditative practices. I'm experiencing evidence of, of, you know, something. And I I don't put necessarily words to it. Um, So I guess, I don't know if it's necessarily a question, but maybe it's a talking point where there's kind of this battle I've noticed between, you know, the Christianity and, and Buddhism or these meditative practices where you kind of have the meditator being like, don't you see, like, it's right here. It's right in front of us. What do you mean? We don't need to argue about it. And then you have this Christianity where it's like, oh no, you need to believe in God. Like, do you believe that Jesus came and died for your sins? Um, I don't know. It's interesting to me when I talk to my friend, it's, he gets really caught up on, do I believe this certain thing when I'm saying, Hey, like, you know, uh, tap into this and and experience it for yourself. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, (laughs) but if you do, the floor is yours. 
All right. Well, actually, I do. I, you know, I'll start off by saying that I grew up Catholic. Um, I left that religion because I, I felt that there was a, a high degree of hypocrisy in the religious part of it, in the practice part of it, in the, you know, we talk about being a certain way and doing certain things, but in reality, when we walk out the door, we're completely different people. And that hypocrisy drove me away from that because it didn't give me any anything to hold on to or any satisfaction. Um, and so I I went in went into looking at philosophy after that as I was growing up, Western philosophy, then Eastern philosophy, then Eastern practices and religions, and you know I've studied just about everything on the planet to some degree um, for an interesting reason. I love to read about other religions and practices and spirituality and look for the common ground between them. Mm -hmm. And I focus on that. And that's when I speak to pastors and I speak to people that are um, extremely, um, that are extreme followers of Christianity. um, I always try and steer the conversation to the things that are common. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if you look back into the history of the church and the different yeah. aspects of the Christian church, um, contemplation, um, contemplative meditation, mm-hmm. um, all of these practices were all practiced within the Christian church. Um, there were many, there's many instances you can read where extremely unusual things happen to some of these saints and what they call saints nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, but religious nuns and, and monks that were living in, in, in contemplation and renunciation. So, you know, th- this isn't something that's East versus West. It's, right. it's more about what do we focus on and what do we mm-hmm. expect to get out of it? I think that my central theme is that when it comes to Christianity, that I don't necessarily follow the line that I need to look to something else to save me. I think I need to save myself using the examples and the words and the stories and the metaphors that are presented in all Western, what they would refer to as Western religions. Mm-hmm. So I try and look for this. I don't try and focus on the details. I try and look at it in a broad picture. And I've actually come back around all the way through the Eastern traditions back into making peace with the, the Western religion part of me that I grew up mm-hmm. with. And I don't see any difference anymore. I, I think there's common ground. I think that if we find points that where we where we disagree um it isn't because one side's right or wrong it's just a uh it's a viewpoint it's a way to look at things do we look at them narrow narrowly narrow is that a word yes okay it is (laughs) when we look at it in a narrow way if we focus on words you know and what the meaning of those words are versus looking at what the words point to, I think we find common ground. Um, yeah. You know, I, I never, I've yet to 
not find that common ground with anyone within um, the, the Christian faith. I, I worked at the hospital for a number of years, an uh, interfaith chaplain. Oh, yeah. And almost every one of the other chaplains there were, were born-again Christians, evangelical Christians. Very, very dogmatic, very literal translation-type people mm-hmm. of the Bible and, and the teachings of the Bible. And yet, I could still touch them somehow and reach hmm. a point where we could find something to talk about that we both agreed on. So, you know, and, and I think it's because most, I'm not, I guess I've gotten to a point in myself where I don't feel threatened by what anyone else thinks. I, I'm willing to let them think what they think or believe what they believe and know that that's their path. And it's like, okay, you're on this path. I may be on this path, but somewhere we come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see a, a direct opposition. Plus, I don't believe that meditation and I don't believe that Buddhism is a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Zen Buddhists certainly don't believe that. Buddhism is a religion. They believe it's a teaching, uh, a means to an end of trying to understand ourselves and and our place in the world, and that it can be applied to any religion. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh um, has been known many times to express that feeling of, in fact, encouraging people not to leave their childhood religions, Mm. but to apply the teachings of mindfulness and meditative practices to their religion to make it more meaningful. Mm. That's beautiful. And I like what you said about connecting with the truth in all the religions. So when you're talking to a born-again Christian, it's easy to argue with them about, you know, argue about them with anything, but it's far more powerful to, like you said, um, find, find that, you know, that truth that's in there and to focus on that. So, this is an interesting one because you've had, I'm not sure when you, where was it? So when I was working at Rogue Roasters, you, you, you were gone on a trip for quite a while and you were practicing with a teacher, I believe, right? And it was uh, in a different tradition. And when I went to India? I, yes. Yes. And he gave, didn't he give you a, a different name over there? Is that... <laughs> I have many spiritual names. Okay. <laughs> each tradition, each teacher wants to give you a name, yes. <laughs> yes, okay. So this, this, is, this is what makes this interesting. So I had asked Jayozin, who had had, I think, maybe one core teacher, you know, what's something that your teacher has said to you that has stuck with you, but because you have so much to draw from, you know, all these, these you know, guys that have been practicing for so long, Guy, I don't know if you've practiced with women, women as well. Um, what is something that one of these teachers has said to you that has really stuck with you? And maybe there's a couple, but if maybe one that comes to mind. Hmm. I asked my teacher in India, um, who's a Vedic scholar in the Hindu religion. He's a Zen mm-hmm. master, and he follows. He's from a Zen tradition that blends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christianity and Buddhism together. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And he transmitted my, uh, he did a transmission with me that allowed me to teach in his tradition um, hmm. and carry on some of the, some of the teachings that, uh, that he believed in. 
And I, mm-hmm. and I think one of the, the, the most profound thing he ever said to me was one of the first things he ever said to me. Because when I first met him, um, I was quite impressed with his knowledge, his demeanor, his, you know, the depth of his personality and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in his mid 80s when I first met him. Um, and he's, he's been known all over the world, although not in the circles that most people follow, but he's had tens of thousands of followers and he spent a good part of his life trying to, to, um, uh, run away from them. <laughs> he would keep moving and, and then people would find him and he'd keep moving. It's like, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It was very funny. Um, <laughs> but so I asked him, of course, you know, being the meditator that I was, and I'm in front of this, this knowledgeable, the most knowledgeable person I've ever met in Eastern religions. Mm. I said, what is the most powerful mantra in the world? And I was expecting him to give me this secret mantra, right? You know, <laughs> that would, you know, take me to whatever, right? Yeah. He looked at me right in the eyes. He goes, the most powerful mantra that you can practice is silence. So, you know, and that just sent chills down me. Mm-hmm. And that has been my practice ever since is when I sit in meditation, I try and pay attention to the part of my mind that is silent. Mm. My entire mind's not silent. Minds mm-hmm. can't be silent. But you can choose what part of your mind to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And you can let the thoughts arise and you can let them, them go. But behind mm-hmm. them, there's this silence that they come out of that you can continue to keep touching. Mm. And something happens when that, when you do that. Something enters you. And I know mm-hmm. that sounds kind of funny, but I can't think of a better word to use. But <laughs> you right. are, you're taught without words. You're taught without feelings. Something happens that is profound, and and you carry on with you when you when you sit up and and start moving through the world. Mm, it's beautiful, and it reminds me. And it's not something I've actually really realized I was doing, but through some of these mindfulness practices, when I'm sitting like you talk about paying attention to that silent part of your mind. Um, In my Zazen practice, I've been paying attention to sound a bit more. And sometimes I will, like you said, tune into the space where the sound is coming from, the underneath it, around it, however you want to say it, to the silence. And it it is interesting how when you do that, like you said, it, it's hard to put into words, but it there's there's something going on. Yeah, it is powerful. It's interesting, but I've never really thought of that. I think maybe he in uh, Eckhart Tolle's book he had mentioned something similar to that. Maybe that's where I originally got the idea to kind of tune into the silence, which is not something you really hear about in our society. Typically, it's all noise. No one's like, "Hey, would you notice the silence?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> So it is interesting. And thank you for that. Uh, Let's see. So I assume we have a lot of new, you know, new to meditation people that are, you know, not as familiar with it. What, what would be some simple advice you'd give to someone that's just starting out in this meditative path? Hmm. Yeah, that's always a challenge because especially 
for anyone who's meditated for many years, it's hard to put yourself back into that place of what was it like when I first started? Mm -hmm. And what I do remember is it being very painful, (laughs) Mm -hmm. both physically and mentally to, because I tried so hard Mm -hmm. to be something or feel something or get to a place that I didn't even know what it was. I, I think when we first start out, I think we need to spend a considerable amount of time getting to be comfortable with ourselves sitting alone and not judge what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, because we, you know, we have busy minds, and especially in the West, we, we, our minds are like a cacophony of, of, of everything that happens to us, everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. And we need to learn how to slow that down. And the process that's always worked for me and that what I recommend to people is to simply observe the fact that you're thinking and to not to not engage or connect with the thought, but just to watch it. And then to be start to become aware of how your mind works. Um, one of the, and I know in one of the classes I taught on meditation, I talked about um, initial thought and secondary thought. And so, and many people teach this. This isn't something I've come up with. This is something I've read and then integrated and then I regurgitate and think it's mine. Um, <laughs> you know, there is no new thought, right? There is no new new belief. We just uh, rephrase everything from the past, I think. But mm. so when you first start sitting, you're going to notice that thoughts arise about things. But then if you pay attention, you'll notice that there's a secondary effect of having an initial thought like, gee, the room's cold. Well, that's what I call a a primary thought or an initial thought. The secondary thought is, I should have brought a sweater. Oh, and and I, you know, I was going to bring that sweater that I really like, but I lent it to my friend. And and I'm going to see them next week, so I'm going to think about asking them for that sweater back. And you start (laughs) down this, this, like, rabbit hole. And the next thing you know, you're, you, you're so far out of yourself and out of the moment down this path of thought that it's hard to like, well, first of all, you need to realize you've done it. Mm-hmm. And secondarily, you need to learn how to stick with the initial thought and then let it go. So it's like, I'm cold. Yes, I'm cold. And I'll probably be cold the whole time I'm sitting here. All right. What's the next thought? That's going to arise right. and not let yourself get drugged down that long path of, you know, Aunt Mabel's roses that bloomed in the summer that blah, blah, blah. <laughs> now, it's just amazing what our, the more you watch your mind, the more you see your mind doing this because that's what minds do. Mm-hmm. And eventually, as you segregate this primary versus secondary thought pattern, you start to be able mm-hmm. to have those primary thoughts arise. And then they arise mm-hmm. and you let them go. And in between right. the thoughts, there's silence until mm-hmm. the next thought comes. 
And so it's like, oh, there's the silence. Of course, mm-hmm. as soon as you think about it, as soon as you realize it, that's a thought, of course. So that's the, the, the joke or the dichotomy of thinking about thinking. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, how can you stop your mind thinking when you're thinking that it's thinking? It's, it's, uh, mm. it's, it's almost hilarious to think about. Mm, it is. But, but to go back, to circle back to what I first said was, mm-hmm. we need to learn how our minds work by observing them and then mm-hmm. realizing what it is that we can do about it so that mm-hmm. we can increase those lengths of time where we do have a silence in between the thoughts. And mm-hmm. I think um, Wayne um, Dyer used to call it the gap, the gap mm-hmm. between thoughts and increasing the length of the gap. It, these aren't things that you can purposefully do, though. They're things mm-hmm. that occur the more you sit. Mm-hmm. And the more you're aware of what's happening while you're sitting, instead of spending the entire time going, is my 15 minutes over yet? You know, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's 10 minutes left. I wonder how long I've been sitting here. You know, mm-hmm. to get engaged in those emotionally charged thoughts is what keeps that thought pattern going. Mm-hmm. So we need to, we put we our need to distance ourselves from the connection we have with our thoughts. And there's yes. many techniques for that. And I'm not, I won't go into a lot of them because, it, you know, it would take a long time. But there's books written about this all over the place mm-hmm. about, you know, how do I break the chain of connection with my thoughts? Mm-hmm. How do I, one of my favorite techniques, mm-hmm. and, and I tell people this all the time, is that as soon as you start thinking a story, the secondary thought, you simply tell yourself, not now. Mm. And then it comes up and you go, yes, I want to think about that, but not now. And you push mm-hmm. it off into the future. So it's like, so that what that does is it stops the cycle of repetitive thought. Um, mm-hmm. It allows you to, to become more comfortable with, you know, meditation is like a gift you give to yourself. It's mm-hmm. time alone. It's time of relaxation. It should mm-hmm. be time of relaxation. It should be a time of, of not trying too hard, but also mm-hmm. a time of keeping enough focus going that you don't fall asleep or slump over or, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not blanking your mind. It's mm-hmm. observing your mind. And that's an active process. Yeah, and you touched on it a little bit. And I think that sometimes... I remember when I first started getting into meditative practice, reading, someone gave me Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of watching your thoughts, it just didn't make sense. And if we could talk on that just a little bit about, you'd mentioned earlier about you know, watching your thoughts, not becoming so involved in them. I think that because we've been practicing for a while, it's easy to say that but what what how do you do that i think is the question like what what is the process of doing that what is that and that that could be maybe that's why no one talks about it because it's such a hard thing to quantify maybe but how would you i guess kind of say that process works what does that look like are we putting our attention in a different place so we see our mind you know our attention being pulled into this thought and we bring it back to our breath i'm curious if you have anything to say on that Okay. So there's a book written by Michael Singer, um, The Untethered Soul. 
Mm-hmm. And, if, and if someone hasn't read that, I would highly recommend it. He's he's so insightful in a pragmatic way, and it isn't overly spiritual or religious. It's mm-hmm. it's more about the mind, if you will. Um, right. And one of the chapters starts off with a statement that floored me, even after <laughs> sitting for all these years. Um, and the statement he starts off with is, there are two things happening in your mind. Mm-hmm. If there's someone talking, there's someone listening. Mm. And it floored me because it was like, you know, first of all, I don't think most, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who don't <laughs> even really realize that they're thinking, that, that there's a voice in their head that they think of as them that's having a conversation. They just, they've never even thought about what that means, mm-hmm. you know, but the point that Michael Singer's making is that if there's someone talking in your head, there's someone listening because hmm. you're hearing also what that voice is saying. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, there's two things happening and then you have a choice of which one am I going to focus on? Am I going to focus on the one who's talking or the one mm-hmm. who's listening? Right. And when you focus on the one who's listening, you become silent because you're mm. listening. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not uh, critiquing and you're not judging. You're simply mm-hmm. listening. And that had a, really a profound effect on me. And again, that goes back to what I said earlier is we have to learn how our minds work in order to work with them. We can't just ignore them. But I had a thought the other day, if you don't mind me saying, is, um, so, you know, we think thoughts, right? And, and they're in English, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, someone in France or Germany, they think in mm. German or French. Mm. And to me, that's like, wow. So thoughts aren't necessarily, you know, something, they're self-generated, you know? Mm-hmm. And we think we're completely out of control, that we can't, we have no control over our thoughts. You know, we don't know where they come from. We don't know why, you know, all these things. But all we really need to do is put some little bit of distance between the talker and the listener. Mm-hmm. And by thinking about things like, well, you know, I speak, I think in English versus German. Um, I have a primary thought and then a secondary thought. Um you know, I can literally stop my thinking by saying not now. All what what all these little techniques or little, you know, little tricks are. Or like what color is my thought? <laughs> you know? And the reason that you ask yourself that is to stop the flow of thinking. It's like a it's like a Zen Cohen. You know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? I don't know. You know? What's the color of my thought? Is it blue? You know, and in that moment, our mind stops. Mm-hmm. And the more we learn to pay attention to that moment when it stops, not making ourselves stop, but just noticing that it does stop, then that space, like you said, talking about the small room versus the airplane hangar, mm-hmm. our mind starts to get very large. And there are thoughts floating around in the airplane hangar, but, you know, they're up there, they're over there, they're not near me. Um, 
Another example of that is I tell people to view their thoughts as if they were listening to the conversation of two people that were across the room. Mm. So your thoughts are going on, and if you pay attention to them, you can, under, you can hear what they're saying. But if you don't pay attention, you hear them, but you can't make out what's being said. And so it's this distancing yourself from the activities in your mind that allow you to not be so driven by them. Because you know what thoughts do to our bodies? They produce stress hormones, cortisol, um, adrenaline. When you think of something scary or some thought of the past or, or some trepidation about the future, your body is infused with stress hormones. And that takes a toll on your body and your mind. So the calmer our minds can be and the less engaged we are with the uh, effect of our thoughts, the healthier we are, we become, both physically and mentally. So one of the good, one of a really good reason to meditate is to be healthier. Right. <laughs> and so then if we're not, if we're not our thoughts, what are we? <laughs> Well, you know, I'll give you the pat answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I figured I'd ask. I know. The pat answer is we are the awareness behind our thoughts. And, and, and until you explore that, it's meaningless. It means nothing. It's, a, it's almost a throwaway joke to someone right. who's never put any thought into it. Because there is no differentiation between awareness and thoughts to, for someone who hasn't Look to see whether there is one. Mm. You know, um, so there's, there's homework you have to do to understand that one. It takes a long time to <laughs> come to a realization of that. I don't think you can make yourself understand that. It's one day you'll go, "Oh, yeah, look, <laughs> there is a difference." You know, and that's a that's an aha moment. Um, mm -hmm. And then once you maybe by having that aha moment. It'll allow you to focus more on that awareness of you being the, you know, you're part of everything that's going on around you. You're not separate from it. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, a, you're a, an integral part of everything. These kind of things, you know, come, you know, before we started this interview, I said, I'm not sure I'm the best guy for this because I don't have a lot of advice for beginners. And yeah. And I know that the people that have been sitting for a long time, they don't need my advice either. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and, and my path has taken me to that point where I kind of laugh now when people want to know or ask me about things that are related to these topics because they're very personal for one. It's like my experiences, I could sit here and tell you all, you know, all day little stories about my awarenesses or openings other people's awarenesses or opening of or openings but it isn't going to do anyone any good right other than maybe make you look at me and go wow you know i wish i i wish i had one of those well yeah you can't do that i mean it's not that's not what it's about because that's not the goal as we said before mm -hmm. but you know i think what beginners beginners come because they are looking to see whether or not these type of practices will help them in their daily life. 
And I, and I think all we can do as longtime meditor, meditators is assure them that it will if they stick to it and if they put the effort in. It's, it's kind of like another analogy I use is it's like going to the gym. You go to the gym one time, you exercise like heck, and you come home and go, wow, I don't have any more muscle. I don't weigh any less. <laughs> you know, gee, you know, it must not work. Well, meditating is like going to the gym. You have to do it consistently and you have to do it over a period of time in order to have it have any kind of benefit for you. And it's hard. It, it's hard and it's discouraging and it's frustrating. And, you know, because it doesn't give you any satisfaction right off the bat. Mm. Too bad that it doesn't because then everybody would do it, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, when you first start, it's like it's torture. You know? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? Why well, Why am I sitting here with my legs cramping? Why? <laughs> yeah. Or why, why am I allowing myself the space to remember painful memories? Mm -hmm. You know? Right. And well, why? Why are they? Because over time, <laughs> those memories will lose their pain by you accepting them for what they are. And they're, they're lessons. They're, they're growth. They're all these positive things, but we don't see them that way because they hurt, you know, and hurt. We run away from hurt and we run towards pleasure. Mm -hmm. that, that's Western philosophy or Western psychology in a nutshell. So wait, you're telling me that if I push down these negative feelings, they're not just going to go away? <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you encounter a, dark, a, a vicious and barking dog, if you go down and try and push his head onto the ground, what happens? He bites you. He bites you. Um, no, you can't. You can't make them go away by denying them. Mm, dang it! But you also don't have to dwell on them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to feel the pain all over again. Mm -hmm. You have to become familiar and and become friends with your pain, so that they can walk alongside you. Have you ever seen that movie, A Brilliant Mind, with Russell Crowe? I maybe haven't. Okay, so it's about a guy who is, um, he's a genius, mm -hmm. but he's also not exactly on this plane of psychology. And he has people that he's created in his mind that come and talk to him and tell him things and make him do things. And, and in some cases, they're helpful. In some cases, they're not. But he spends most of his life denying them and running away from them. Right. Um, at the end, I'll just do a spoiler because, you know, it doesn't really matter. But at the end <laughs> of the movie, the last scene is him walking along with all of them as if they're all friends. And he's having this, you know, really congenial conversation with them. He's made peace with them. Mm -hmm. And by making peace with them, they no longer have a negative effect on him. They, they work together with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have to do with, with painful or unpleasant thoughts or or judgments, or, you know, I'm not doing as well as the person sitting next to me meditating. You know, mm -hmm. I'm moving around and fidgeting, and they're not moving a muscle. You know, they look way more peaceful than I am. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, that inside that person's mind, they might be, you know, in a, in a terrible place. Right. We don't know. So, so putting myself in the seat of maybe a listener that has never done this, has never, doesn't really understand what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, seeing, feeling, and allowing these 
tough emotions or memories to come up. I mean, what does that process look like when you when those things are coming up? What are we encouraging people to do? First thing is to smile at them. And in that smiling, we create a distance. The separation is what's really important here. Learning how to separate the smallest, tiniest little bit, the, the infinitesimal gap between a feeling and emotion and our awareness. Right. And that little gap is what actually allows us the opportunity to create a relationship with it by considering yourself separate from the experiences that you that you hold now you know in meditation when we first start um we do need some techniques to help us with our mind Mm -hmm. and you know mantras um paying attention to our breath counting breaths all of these things are not what meditation's about, but they're techniques to help us to learn how to focus on what we're doing. Um, I, I refer to it as, you know, giving a dog a bone to chew on. So it keeps them occupied. It keeps your mind occupied. If we pay attention to our in-breath and our out-breath, every time we realize we're not thinking about breathing out and breathing in, then we bring our mind back to our breath. And so it's a, it's a going out and coming back over and over again. In a 15-minute meditation, you may have your awareness drift off of your breath 100, 200 times. It doesn't matter how many times. Yeah. The practice is to notice that you left your breath and to bring yourself back. It's not staying in your breath. It's focusing on the noticing that you left. And that's a really good practice for beginners because that's easy to to learn how to do after a short while. And it gives you, you build on that as you go forward. So to to kind of maybe, again, put myself in that, that seat of a new person to this, you know, kind of summarizing what I heard, it's, what we're, what we're cultivating is a awareness that can hold and be with what's going on inside of our minds and our bodies in a, with a, instead of a tight fist around these things, we have a loose grip or just a hand out. We, we're seeing these things, but we're not gripping them in a sense. So another analogy might be if you enter a crowded room, like at a party, and everybody's talking and their glasses clinking, and you know there's conversation and laughter, but there's one person in the room who is saying something extremely important. It's like they have the truth, mm-hmm. and they're talking, but you can't hear them because of all the other noise. So the goal in meditation, in, in, to some degree, is to learn how to tune out all the other conversations so that you can hear what's being said that's important. Because, you know, peace and um, happiness and satisfaction and uh, beneficial feelings are all there all the time. Mm -hmm. But they're like that one person in the room that you can't hear because of all the other noise. When you get rid of the, the noise... 
all of a sudden, those things that have always been there become apparent. So we're not trying to make ourselves peaceful. We're not trying to make ourselves happy. We're trying to remove everything else so that those things that are already there become apparent. Mm. Because a lot of people say, well, how do I make myself peaceful? How do I find peace? Well, you don't have to find it. It's already there. It's just Mm -hmm. that you can't see it because of everything else. So instead of trying to create peace, and that's what people do is, you know, they try and arrange their life so that everything, there's no conflict and we don't, we don't want to be around conflicting people. We don't want to be around <laughs> conflicting events. We don't want a job we don't like. You know, we try and fix everything around us so that we can create mm-hmm. peace of mind. That's not the way it works, you know? And it, when we realize that, it gives you a reason to meditate. It gives you a reason to keep going through all the frustration that you're going to meet in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Of course, your mind's busy and crazy and you're having one thought overlap another. Of course you are. That's what you've been taught to do growing up. You know, Mm -hmm. an idle mind is the devil's workshop is the old saying from way back when. You know, we don't think having a quiet mind is a good thing, Mm. you know, in our culture. But in fact, it's it's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Why do we meditate? We meditate to remove the obstacles that prevent us from seeing the things that we truly want. Mm-hmm. And as Gandhi would say, there's no path to peace, but peace is the path. Exactly. Yeah. But again, it, for someone that's entering into this way of thinking or, you know, this philosophy, that makes no sense. Right. You know, it, it right. doesn't because it's contradictory. Mm-hmm. And yet, within that contradiction is the truth, but it takes a long time to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, give I my 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 recommendation or my you know uh, what I would suggest to people entering meditation is give yourself time, give yourself time to learn slowly but surely how to find these things and. You know, follow the technique that makes sense to you. If you if you want a mantra, if you want a saying that mean is meaningful to you, you mm-hmm. know, these are all just little things to give our minds to do something with. So find the one that makes sense to you. You know, if it's a positive affirmation, you know, like I am safe and happy and well, and you just say that on your in-breath and your out-breath, then whatever works for you. It there's no secret way or or means to make the mind be calm. Mm -hmm. We just need to find the things that help us get to it closer and closer over time. Unfortunately, there is no time, you know, people will joke and say there's no time, or maybe they're serious, there is no time. Of course there's no time. But it takes time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Suzuki Roshi uh, used to make a lot of statements about that. It's like, you know, he'd say things like, all my students are perfect, although most of them could use a little work. You know, it, it's kind of that contradiction of, of allowing yourself the, the space and giving yourself permission to make mistakes and do it the wrong way until you find the right way. Mm-hmm. 
I've met many people in my life who have meditated for over 30 years and aren't very nice people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't believe they got they ever got to where they needed to be or or never they they never allowed it to have the effect on them that it should have. Mm. You okay. know? You can you can focus on the ritual, you can focus on the means, you can focus on the philosophies mm-hmm. and never find what they point towards because you're paying too much attention to what you look like, how you act, <laughs> what you say. You know, you're trying to be the meditator. You're trying to be the, the spiritual person. Um, you know, that in my life, that's the point I'm at. I'm at this point where I have to leave those things because they, they don't hold any meaning for me anymore. And they don't help me. It's like the pathless path. You be, eventually... You follow the path till it's not a path, you know, and then you walk off into the woods because there's nothing left. You know, you've, you've, uh, it's not like you're done. It's not like you've reached enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. It's that you no longer care about becoming enlightened. It's not important. You know, it, it, you, everything loses its need to be, you know? And, and at that point, you're free. You're free to be and act. And, you know, they, there's old stories about, you know, old Zen masters who, as, you know, as they got later on in life, they, they became almost crazy in their, in their actions and their deeds. And, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of them drank to excess. And it, it's like you get to this point where you've, you've followed all the ritual, you've followed all the lessons, you've, You've done what you're supposed to do, and you've reached a point where you realize that it was there all along, and mm-hmm. it, you just took a long time to realize it. Mm-hmm. But as a beginner, you know that doesn't make a lot of sense, and, and I understand that. Well, this this podcast is for everybody. There's we probably have you know people that are like us that are looking on podcasting app for Buddhism, and then you got mm-hmm. other people that don't know anything about it. So it's okay to kind of. Straddle both sides of the the ditch. Well, you know, and they talk about they talk about reading all the stories of the old Zen masters and reading mm-hmm. the stories of of um, their teachings. And we do that, I think, for encouragement. You know, it's like it is possible. It, it's nice to know it's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you didn't have that belief that it's possible, I don't think you'd start. Right. So. It's it's good to talk about you know the good things that come out of it too, even though in the beginning it doesn't seem like it'll ever get there. But so I, you said you had a you had to go at one, so that leaves like two three minutes. Ah, I know. I'm keeping an eye on the clock for you. What you know in closing, you have a couple minutes. Is there anything you'd like to close with, or any final thoughts? Just you know, and and I'll just speak to. The beginners, because people mm-hmm. that aren't beginners will hopefully nod their heads sagely <laughs> as I say it. It's don't be too hard on yourself. Don't be judgmental. Mm-hmm. Don't compare yourself. This is a private journey. Even if you do it in in community in sangha, it's still private. It's still mm-hmm. your own personal path, and your path will be nothing like anyone else's. Mm. And 
as long as you're true to yourself and you follow you follow where you think your heart is taking you you can't go wrong because it's all part of the path if like you know meditating for 10 years and then not meditating for 10 years and then coming back to it it's all part mm-hmm. of the path you learn you become more you you eventually get to a point where you're just okay with yourself you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's a, a enlightenment i don't know <laughs> i mean i i don't think care about it anymore i don't think about it mm-hmm. because i don't think to try and put a goal out there way in the future and say someday i will be enlightened is ridiculous because the longer you meditate the more you realize that it's not important mhm you know you're you're it's like walking through a door backwards instead of walking through a door forwards instead mm. of walking through a door with purpose headed towards something you find yourself walking backwards through the door and finding yourself in a new place without even knowing you got there ah that's beautiful thank you so much rick you're welcome yeah and it's been a pleasure talking with you again let's let's maybe not have to do the podcast every time we talk but let's talk soon <laughs> all right all right and take care over there um it's about one o'clock so i think you got to go huh yes i'd love to do this again matt there's so much to talk about i agree Let, let's make it let's make a habit of it i'll, I'll get a hold of you soon all right take care okay, take care rick bye-bye bye